Recovery Sort Of is a podcast where we discuss recovery and addiction topics from the perspective of people living in long-term recovery. This podcast does not intend to represent the views of any particular group, organization, or fellowship. The views expressed here are solely the opinion of its contributors. Be advised there may be strong language or topics of an adult nature. Welcome back. I'm Jason. I'm a guy that enjoys long division. <laughs> My name's Billy. I'm a person in long-term lonely recovery at this point. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Lonely, lonely quarantine. Uh, so just to hop in, this is going to be a, you know, about the fifth step. That is our goal. It's May already. I don't know how the hell it's May already, but it is May, which is the fifth month. So we will do the fifth step. Um, but before we do that, we want to recap a little bit about what we talked about last week, which mostly uh, came into, you know, what are people doing to keep their recovery fresh and how have they had to adjust during quarantine? And so, you know, we, we put that on Facebook and, and Twitter on our social media and just got some responses. Um, one of the first, Rachel said she was still enjoying herself and uh, she had attended an online business meeting the other day, which was, I think, outside of, you know, a program meeting. Uh, and she said, gave they gave a test to figure out if they were optimists or pessimists. And, uh, you know, she normally just tends to see the good in things and it's been such a blessing to her life. And I was relating in at the time. I don't know if I still am. I got a little bored yesterday, but I, I was doing pretty well at the time we were, uh, we were having that conversation. Um, do you think uh, this has anything to do with pessimism or optimism, though? And, and and I'm not trying to discount her her comment. I think her comment was very valid. I just mean in general, like this whole. Do you think people who are not who are struggling with quarantine are pessimists, or do you think they're just maybe struggling with some other aspects? Maybe they're extroverts who really need contact, or. Yeah, I would say. Obviously, it depends on the person. I know me personally. I am a extrovert. Um, I like being around people. I like interacting with other people. I mean, it's, you know, I like people. Um, and like, even in my past before, you know, computers and social media, I was never big on phone calls and, you know, long phone conversations in my recovery. I've always done way better with face-to-face in-person, uh, communication connection uh i can see how though you know i try to remind myself sometimes that uh you know there are some minor benefits happening as a result of all this obviously they're saying some things are happening with the earth and you know the environmental health is better and nature's sort of doing a little bit of a comeback because we aren't out you know, destroying the planet as much. And so I, I remind myself of those things, you know, to try to, uh, 
get a better perspective on the entire situation as a whole, but I don't think that helps me personally with my recovery. I gotcha. Yeah. I, uh, I, I will say, and I've been getting, I haven't been struggling as much as, as a lot of people that I care about. Um, and I've been kind of trying to figure out why, and I didn't know if it said something about me or, or anything like that, but I know one of the things that greatly helped because I've struggled with phone conversations and I've even, you know, I've definitely complained about video conversations. Like my daughters are constantly on video chat and shit in my house. And I'm like, Oh my, get the fuck off of that. Right. Like I don't even want people to hear me on the phone. Definitely. I don't want you to see me on the phone and yet being forced because of my internship into doing teletherapy. So I was constantly sitting in video chats for an hour. Uh, I love it now. Like I, yeah. I got a buddy in, you know, down near Baltimore and I've like, we've got a regular, I'll talk to you for an hour, uh, on video chat each week just for the hell of it. Cause it's kind of cool. Um, so I, maybe, uh, you know, after being forced into it, like maybe that's what has helped me that just kind of adapted. Yeah. And I think practice with it or just doing it on a regular basis would make it, easier i don't know about better but i'll definitely say (laughs) it would make it easier um there's a thing and i know you know my wife uses that uh marco polo i don't know if you're familiar with that it's kind of like a a video messaging so instead of leaving like a voicemail it would be like a video message and so she yeah it's (laughs) i think it is too but she uses that actually quite a bit with quite a few of her, I'll say female friends. Um, her and I have tried to use it some and I'm terrible at it because again, it just doesn't feel like, you know, I don't feel like I'm talking to her. I don't feel like that's a person. Right. I feel, you know, like I'm talking to my phone and leaving a message for her, but she has said that that has greatly improved her relationship with some girls that she sponsors and some friends because it's a little bit more personable than a text message. It can be a little more longer and, and more detailed because it's, you know, you might do a Marco Polo that's four or five minutes. That's just a voicemail. That person can listen to it at their leisure when they have time, when they have that couple minutes and then leave you a message back. And so she communicates regularly through that with a couple of people. Damn. So if Marco Polo doesn't start paying us after this, I don't know what the fuck. Yeah. <laughs> well, like I say, I've tried it and it just, again, it, for me, it was I'm like, ah, oh, this, I don't get it. It's weird. I don't like right. it. And I tried it. I've, I've done it, you know, a few times and I tried to do it for her, you know, because she really enjoyed it. But, you know, I think we're just, everyone's a little different and how they feel connected is slightly different. You know, we have different yeah. personalities. No, absolutely. And and I think we'll find more of that as we read through some of these that everybody's kind of got a different plan on how they're attacking it. And, you know, what works for some doesn't work for others. I, I do. I will say this is interesting. And just to point out that most of these people that commented are people who were online to answer this question. And a lot of the people who, you know, might not be online, uh, who are like going out and doing what they need to do for their recovery in person. Uh, did not answer and and they do exist too, right? Like they're having bonfires on Wednesday nights or they're, you know, doing this, that, or the other with other people. And so that is also something that people are doing. It's just not very well represented in our answers. 
Um, yeah, that's pretty cool. So Will says he's been reading online meetings, working on a step every day and praying more. Uh, so that's good stuff. Brian said Xbox, which I, I guess that's helping his recovery. Uh, Reed said he's doing recovery podcasts, old convention CDs, and phone calls. Um, another guy, Jason, says he's only gone to one meeting in the past six weeks. And normally he goes six to seven days a week. And he's still reading, writing, and talking to people as always. Mm. One meeting in seven weeks does sound like rough. I don't know how he's doing it. Yeah, that's tough. Uh, Michael says online meetings and step work. Uh, although he's grateful, it is not the same, and he can't wait to get back to church basements. He misses his people. Yeah. Uh, Amanda says not much has changed. She had always been busy working and commuting. In that time, she would listen to the recovery podcasts. Um, NPR apparently has a good radio show called Baltimore Recovery or something like that. I've never even heard of that. Um, <laughs> Also, make it a point to write down five things I'm grateful for every day. Read just for today. Daily quote, nightly quote. Meditate for at least 10 minutes. Uh, finding a meeting can be hard if you're working and maintaining the home. Also, keep in touch with recovering addicts from all over the world. It helps. Yeah, that was pretty thorough. I was like, damn, I, I, my recovery feels lacking now that I've read that. Yeah, that's that's a pretty serious commitment. I mean, that's that's more than I would say. I would say that's above average. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. If not, I'm like way below average because I've not <laughs> yeah, all me that. Too. <laughs> uh, couple more Facebook ones. Just Patty said she's doing a meeting every day, doing step work, conscious contact with her higher power through prayer and meditation, reaching out to her sponsor and other recovering people, reading spiritual alignment books, journaling, being grateful, walking a lot, planting in her garden, and enjoying the beautiful creation. Enjoying the beautiful creation. Oh, I guess that's it. She's just enjoying the beautiful creation. Um, I, that was another pretty goddamn thorough list. I, I like, you know, sometimes I, I put these questions up on, on social media and I expect people to like have some conversation, to be where I'm at. And then when they have well surpassed where I'm at, I'm like, damn, I feel worse for putting that up there. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely makes it tough. Uh, I, uh, okay. I know I, you know, try to hold myself to those standards. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. Yeah. I try to hold myself to those, uh, high standards of others sometimes and then feel bad about myself cause I fall short. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, Kirsten said <clears throat> she's problem. She's really having is no matter how many meetings she hits on her phone, it doesn't feel like NA. Uh, like the part that works for me is being comfortable to talk around people that I know and I don't feel the connection. And, um, you know, just to, to kind of go back with all those, I mean, I did not hit as many meetings this week as I have been previously. Um, I, I don't want to say I ran out of places to go to like countries and stuff, not by far, there's more, but it is a chore at times to like find the meeting, to do the time zone change, to make sure it speaks English, to make sure I have the passcode, blah, blah, blah. There's like so many things. And then you finally get all that nailed down and then you got to interrupt your day or I have to interrupt my day at whatever point in time for this hour and a half. That's usually not at a very convenient time. Um, 
you know, depending on what's going on in my house. And so this week, because I do some other stuff too, I was like, you know what, maybe I need a little less pressure about hitting a meeting every day. And so I didn't pressure myself. I hit like four, maybe three. I don't even remember. Um, and they were cool, but, but I've kind of noticed what people are talking about. Like I don't, I feel more connected at my home group where I know the people for sure. Next in line to that, I feel more connected when I share. Uh, there's a lot of meetings I go to where I don't say anything and I don't feel connected at all. I mean, it might be an all right meeting, some nice stuff to listen to, but I don't feel connected to it because I haven't spoken or, you know, included myself. Um, and so I don't know. I, I, you know, I have a day step works on my calendar now. I'm still hitting some meetings. Uh, I picked up a more a physical routine this week where I decided I'm going to run. Uh, every other day. And then on the in-between days, I'm going to do push-ups, And so that's been exhausting the hell out of me. I'm like sore and don't want to move right this moment. <laughs> um, but I still feel like I keep setting up new challenges or new goals or, or something to work towards. And so I don't feel stagnant or like I'm falling out of place yet. Yeah. And I know for me, I keep hanging on to this notion that we're going to get back to normal soon. It's going to be coming pretty soon. So I'm not going to bother starting or building or making a whole new routine. I'll just wait because, you know, and it just sort of I've been saying that for weeks now. And now I think the guy on the news said in Maryland, it's we're into week seven now of this lockdown, which I never really thought it was going to be seven weeks. I don't know what mm -hmm. I thought it was going to be, but. I guess I expected, ah, this is going to be a couple of weeks and things are going to, you know, people are going to freak out and we're going to get back to normal, which is kind of what's happening now. <laughs> and, uh, you know, then I'll get back into my normal routine of exercise and eating a little better. And for, this is like a break. This is like a summer vacation kind of thing. Right. And now it's into seven weeks. It's like, holy shit, you know, this is way longer than a little break. And do I want to try well, I haven't wanted to try to build a whole new routine. And that is around, you know, all aspects of my recovery, mental, physical, and spiritual health, you know, not really doing much exercise, not doing a lot of getting to new meetings and doing a lot of that, not building a bunch of relationships outside of, you know, going to the meetings. So, I keep hanging on to this notion that we're it, it's going to be over soon. I was curious that with how many people I've heard that are struggling with meetings. And, and I think we might get into this after step five, if there's a little time we, we kind of talked about it the other day a little bit, but just if people are more frustrated with the online meetings because they're holding on to what they used to have or holding on to what they're missing. Like, is it, is it, I'm, is it I can't buy into online meetings because I can't let go of the fact that I want in-person meetings? Like, is that part of the, the equation? So for me personally, so here's a couple things that I find annoying, distracting. Um, and I've been experimenting with ways to work around this. But, okay, when people don't have their video on, when they just have a stock picture or an image or nothing up there, um, I don't like that. I'm like, what, you know, it's a fucking black screen, you know, that's, if, and it's, again, this is all just me personally, things that annoy me. So I don't like that. 
I don't like that in most meetings I've been to, you get people like they'll pop in in the middle of the meeting, then they just pop out in the middle of the meeting. And, you know, it's like they're coming to check who's there. Um, that stuff is annoying. Um, and I guess I would say it's it's similar to like a regular meeting. Like if if I went to, you know, a traditional in-person meeting where there was, you know, say 50 or 75 people and people are walking in and out the whole time and there's a bunch of side conversations going on. Like for me, that shit is annoying and distracting. And I would leave that and go, ah, that sucked. Like I didn't get a lot out of that <laughs> meeting, you know, because all those little distractions are just not what I'm used to. It's not what I'm most comfortable with. I don't do well in big crap. You know, there's reasons that it bothers me. What I personally like are meetings where it's 10, maybe 20 people. Um, you know, people are respectful of the meeting. They're not playing on their phones. They're not fucking side conversating. They're not getting up, walking in and out of the room. Like those are things that bother me. Um, and so there's some things with online meetings that bother me, you know, that I don't like. Um, Again, I've been trying to work around. I've been doing some different things with like the video settings as far as you only see the person that's speaking. Um, but then it gets weird when people are trying to do the group saying together things, the prayer or the, you know, mm. the common sayings or, you know, thanks for sharing or hi to people like that stuff's all weird. Um, so maybe it's just that it's different. It's not what I'm used to. It's not what I'm comfortable with. Um, so it it just feels alien. You should have been in a Toronto meeting I was in the other night. It was six of us for an hour and a half. I <laughs> <laughs> loved it. Very small. Um, I was wishing there was a couple extra voices in there, honestly. Mm -hmm. uh, no, I just, I guess, like, people are calling for, oh, we need to get back to what it was. Like, I'm not getting nothing out of this. And I and maybe they're not, right? And I'm not trying to deny anybody that. I just, I definitely was curious, like, if you walked outside and dropped dead, and you just couldn't walk outside if that was the actual like situation we were in. I just wonder if more people would be okay with the online meetings. Like if, if they would, if, if that would let them give up on the hope of something different, like right now there's still, well, we can go out and have bonfires together. Like the police aren't going to lock us up. And so they still do. And I just wonder if that option was completely shut off. It would, if it would be less, anger or, or not anger but just more acceptance of the online version it'd be like well this is what the fuck we got we could better roll with it yeah and i was thinking too you know i'm say along those same lines it's like when we talk about like suffering or struggling like i don't i mean to say that i'm struggling is a, a stretch i mean it's not like i feel like i'm gonna use or that i feel like i'm so alienated i want to commit suicide like i don't feel those feelings for sure so i want to be clear when i talk about you know i am suffering or struggling for this there's levels to that shit too um and i think for some of us though like you say it's it's easy to i don't want to say dismiss the severity of the coronavirus but you know, again, it's and this goes even to opening up the government or opening up the society. There are still things we can do to be reasonably responsible and fucking be able to go out around other people. 
you know, why does it have to be such extremes? Like it's almost the opposite of what you're saying. Like, yes, if we had the extreme of what you're talking about, where as soon as you walk outside, there's imminent death, then yes, I probably would be like, Hey man, I don't want to fucking die. I'll just make this work. (laughs) But that isn't the reality. And we're acting like almost like that is the reality. And so, you know, it feels like, wait a minute, we can go out and meet in groups and do some things responsibly. And it's not like six out of the 10 people that met that day are going to drop dead. You know, so we're acting like that's the reality or, or it feels like sometimes we're acting like that's the reality when it's not. Right. Well, I think the problem is, and, and you know, not to get us too far off track before we get to the point today of where we're actually here for, but I, I think part of the problem is if you go out in groups, we don't know well enough who will catch it, who won't. We don't know well enough who has it and who doesn't, because what we're finding is a lot of people don't have symptoms now. And so what we're doing is taking a risk. Basically it's like, yeah, we might never know who was, uh, who was sick or who got it from that or who passed it to who afterwards, but we don't, that's the point. We don't know. Right. And, And so I don't think we could say that we're doing it responsibly, I guess is my point. I really don't think we can claim that when we don't really know. And and that's where I'm like, I don't know what to do with that. Are people going to drop dead that day? No. Are any of the healthy people that choose to go out going to be the ones that drop dead? No idea. Right. Could they continue the, the spread of it to hit somebody that was vulnerable? They could. And so when you don't know who has, it's like, it would be like uh, saying, hey, only one in a hundred people has, you know, a sexually transmitted disease that'll kill you. But you choose to not use a condom with any saying, well, the odds are low. I'll just do it responsibly. Well, you didn't use the protection that was available. <laughs> like that's not really responsibly. You don't know which one out of the hundred has it. Sort of. So the, I would say the difference there or what we're, the freedoms and what we're giving up in this case with the amount of, you know, uh, social distancing rules that are enacted are a little more extreme. Um, I think we're, we're, we are literally giving up constitutional rights, <laughs> you know, at this point, you know, we're giving up our freedom in essence, we're giving up parts of what I believe makes our society or community um, healthy and whole to mitigate a risk that I'm not saying there's no risk, but the risk is fairly low. I mean, when you talk about, even if it is, let's say 2% or 3%, which are what they're saying is probably the more extremes at this point. Um, and maybe there's some people that say it's higher numbers or it could be higher numbers, but I've heard two to 3% is a high, uh, I guess you'd call it mortality rate. Like how, you know, how do you balance that? Like at what point are some of the negative impacts as far as mental health, financial health, those things are going to lead to suicides and, you know, we know overdose deaths are, you know, at least in Cecil County are double. 
Um, you know, there's lots of negative deaths that come about or as a result of the restrictions that are in place. And I'm not saying that to justify, you know, oh, we should just open tomorrow. But it's not like there is no risk to anyone or anything by us just all being locked in at home. You know, there's there's risk to anything that we do. There is. I actually read a really good article probably like three weeks ago at this point when they first started talking about opening things up. And the, the justification was the, you know, the, all the suicides and all that, that that's actually not true whatsoever, according to statistics. Like people who are poor are more likely to commit suicide, but people who get poor during economic downturns are not. There's actually less crime and less death during economic downturns than there is. There's way less violence. And so that that whole statement about people killing themselves because we don't have an economic, you know, that we have a, a economic shift or whatever is actually way off and just sounds good. So they use it. Well, the way I heard it explained, and maybe this is slightly different, maybe it's the same thing. I don't know. Is that when the economy is better and more successful, they see suicide rates percentage-wise are lower than the, when the economy is bad. So when the economy is down, suicide rates go up. And I don't know if that's a anecdotal thing <laughs> or not, but that's, that's... Yeah, the one I read... The one I read was a researcher and he was talking about the whole deal back then. And he also, he gave the case of, you know, in general, people of lower socioeconomic status have higher suicide rates. Yes. But when people have money and lose it, that is not true. Like that's not the case for them at all. And then he was going into the whole during 1918 and, and how cities that did more for their quarantining for the Spanish flu more immediately and then held it longer, bounced back quicker economically than cities that took half measures, waited till too late or didn't hold it out long enough. And he gave the, the, one of the pieces was like um, the twin cities and like they did opposite things right there next to each other in Minnesota. And yet one, the one who started their quarantine early and kept it for like four months had bounced back economically by the following year Whereas the other one, it took like five years and they still weren't completely back to where they were just because they hadn't. And it, he didn't, you know, he couldn't prove that it was because of that, but it definitely sure seemed like the people, the cities around the U.S. that took the greater precautions and kept them longer bounced back quicker afterwards. Hmm. I wonder what the reasoning for that would be, or, you know, what the... I don't know. If I can find that article again, I'll pass it on to you. But I thought it was interesting. Yeah. It gave a whole... It was very opposite of what you hear everyone say and it even acknowledged it said look this shit that they're saying sounds true so it's easy for us to believe but we looked at the statistics and it's just not real yeah i was like huh that's super interesting actually it's one of the ones where you like click on a news story on your phone and you're like oh i'll read this little page and it ends yeah. up being like 18 pages and you're like fuck that was really good <laughs> yeah hi i like checking stuff like that out it's things you don't hear every day you know right that's what's that's what's fun about the internet, I guess. Anybody can have opinions about anything now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just to wrap up this recap real quick, on, on Twitter, uh, Ramsey said, quarantine and social distancing has given him an opportunity to analyze what is actually recovery necessary. 
and what was in their recovery just because they were told it had to be. Uh, and he got over the attendance dependence a year ago. So he's now filtering out what he's outgrown and doesn't need. I thought that was actually a really interesting response. And, and so I, you know, I interacted with him for a few more comments just to figure out what he was getting at exactly. Cause it seemed, it almost seemed like a, Hey, what I realized in quarantine was that I don't need a program is what the way it came across that. I don't think that's what he was trying to say ultimately, but that was how I read that first statement. I was like, Oh, what you don't need is what you figured out. Um, one of the things he pointed out and I thought this made a really, I guess an interesting point. So he said he had figured out that he didn't need conversations with other alcoholics. And that was like really joyous for him to figure that out. And I was like, Oh shit, this is, this is going terrible. Right. Uh, and so I delved in a little further and what he said was, look, it's not like I don't want to get back to having some conversations. He's like, but what a freeing experience it was to realize that I'm not relying on that to stay sober, right? Like I can be clean without those conversations too. And he's like, that just felt really good. You know, and I was like, huh, I guess that is a neat way to look at it. You see what you can live without and still remain, you know, clean. Yeah. And I actually was thinking something similar at the beginning of this conversation, um, he talked about the meeting dependence. And I was thinking for me personally, I don't, meetings aren't my recovery per se. Like I get more out of um, my relationships, you know, conversations and talking to other people in recovery about real daily life struggles or, you know, living life on life's terms, conversations you and I might have, like they talk about sort of the meeting before the meeting or the ride to the meeting or the eating mm. after the meeting, like meetings. So in this area, um, and it's going to sound probably a little bit arrogant, but I have a lot of time, more time than most people when I walk into most meetings around here and sometimes the most amount of time. And that doesn't mean no one in the meeting has nothing to offer. But I have been to, I would say, thousands of meetings. There isn't a whole lot of like brand new, unique, eye-opening perspectives that I'm going to get out of a meeting most times. Occasionally, you hear some things. There are a couple of reasons I go to meetings. One is that connection to fellow recovering addicts, just to remind myself, A, of where I come from and what I will become without a program of recovery, but B, to remind myself what I'm capable of and what I will, you know, likely do if I go back to using. Like, just because I haven't done something yet or, you know, that's not in my story now doesn't mean it can't be in my story in the future. Um, so there's a lot of those reminders that come in, but it's also just the fellowshipping and the opportunity to like get to know people to, to just build social relationships. But as far as my spiritual growth as an individual, I don't know that I would say a very little bit of that comes from actually going to meetings. Um, it doesn't mean it's not important to my recovery. So when I am not getting what I'm used to getting out of meetings, I don't get that through online meetings. I don't know if I said that very, that's kind of confusing way to say that. 
the personal interaction and the one-on-one and the meeting before the meeting and the hanging out, bullshit and laughing, cutting up, you know, just catching up with friends. Like that's what I get out of meetings. That's the, probably the greatest benefit for me personally. I'm not saying that's for everybody. And I don't, you know, I'm sure other people, but it's like Ramsey said, like, I don't have a dependence on meetings for my spiritual growth. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, I would say meetings remind me regularly of like who I am. You know, I hear other people talk about some things they're going through in the meeting and it's not necessarily anything mind blowing. Um, and I'm not trying to contradict anything you said. I'm just stating what they do for me. Uh, I would say, you know, people talk about, Hey, I was going through this this week and I'm like, Oh shit, that's right. I'm, I'm an addict, right? I struggle with that kind of stuff and I need to maintain my spiritual position. Not so much by being at the meeting. It's just kind of a refresher of like, Oh yeah, you, you got to do these things on a daily basis. They're good for you. Um, I would say the thing it does be beyond that for me is it's a commitment to show up when I don't feel like it, because I'll be damn well honest. I rarely ever feel like leaving my house to go to a meeting. Right. And a lot of nights it's reminding myself, Hey, you took, excuse me, you took this commitment. It's important to you. And it's not about you frequently. Um, like I might be showing up to give back to somebody else on a lot of nights. It might not be about what I get out of the meeting. Right. And so, I think that's what a lot of it, what it is for me. It's just a reminder of who I am and, and a commitment to show up to serve, you know, the, the program or the fellowship in some way, shape or form. But yeah, it's not, it's definitely not where I'm getting the goods uh, for my replenishment. Yeah. And I'm glad you said that. Cause when I, you're right in that I do try to go to meetings with a perspective of it's my opportunity to share my recovery and give back to others. Yeah. That's a, that's an important part of it too. Um, I don't want to gloss over that or negate that because that is also, you know, I believe being an addict, I'm a self-centered self-serving person. And to get out of that, I need to be of service to others. And so a lot of, I do get that out of meetings as well. Um, that just reminded me of something interesting. So when we were traveling, we were in an area up in Massachusetts, a fairly rural area that was hit really hard by the opioid epidemic. Um, I mean, ridiculous percentage of overdose deaths. And uh, they had a huge influx in their, at least in their NA community. They've had a tremendous influx of younger people, recovery houses, people coming out of treatment. And in essence, their area was overwhelmed. People with experience that could sponsor were overwhelmed um, as far as taking on sponsees and everything else. So what they did in that area was had meetings. They called them flat book meetings. And people, if you didn't have a sponsor, you would go to the flat book meeting and in essence work steps at these meetings because there weren't enough sponsors to sponsor everyone. Yeah. And so I think, in a case okay. like that, like, sorry, in a case like that, like that's how they were working steps, you know, like, and so I wonder if they could still do that sort of thing. I guess you could still do that online. I don't know. Yeah. So, uh, I, I mean, for my recovery, we, I've been a part of step studies, which I'd love to get honestly, uh, maybe into something real similar to that. Again, I've been trying to think of a way 
to make that workable for my recovery for like, God, probably like eight years now, honestly, Billy, I've really wanted to do something like this and yeah. just not had the time or the place or, or whatever it was. Um, and so one day I hope to do that, which I've always considered like an extra. It's, it's not like actually working the steps. It's like a outside extra of, you know, just extra material. But I do know that other fellowships that are smaller and not as prevalent as ours, maybe they, they do work steps like this. They have, you know, Hey, uh, the next 24 weeks, each two weeks is going to be a step we go over and we're going to work it together and we're going to do it together. And, uh, I actually know somebody right now who's doing that online uh, with the ACA program. And so, yeah, I, I think that is a, a valid option. And my initial reaction was, that's not how you do it. You got to have your sponsor. <laughs> right. And I was like, what the fuck? Yeah. It probably works just as well. Like what the hell, as long as there's people yeah. there to guide you. And so we had talked to some people that had some time up there and the way they explained it, this was a woman who had some time. She said, you know, when this first started, they were all against it too. And like, Oh, you got to get a sponsor and all this stuff. And, and she said, I literally was just overwhelmed with the amount of newcomer women that had come in. She's like, I had like fucking 20 sponsees and people were calling all the time and wanting to go over steps. And, you know, she's like, it was just too overwhelming. Like I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And they would have the thing in the meeting where they would say, anybody willing to sponsor or capable of sponsoring, you know, raise your hand. And you would, when we first went to that area, you would see people that you knew had some time that you had talked to a little bit and they wouldn't raise their hand. And you'd be like, what? You know, you, you got to raise your hand. You always got it. You know, God's in right. charge and, you know, you'll never, God will never give you more than you can handle those sort of things. And in talking to this person, they said, you know, it just was overwhelming. And they said, for my own health and my own, I mean, not only are you not being of service to yourself, you're not being of service to those people when you're just not available the way that they might need. So, right. you know, that was the option that they had come up with in that area. So some of these things would be different in different areas than they are here. Again, it's easy to get into, you know, well, this is what we do here and having these luxuries of lots of meetings, lots of sponsors, lots of availability of people because, you know, we can drive 30 minutes, you know, north or 30 minutes south on 95 and have literally thousands of recovering addicts to help us. Where in some of those rural areas, they don't have that. No, no. And I hear you and we can, but I'll say this, uh, you talk about how plentiful it is around here. And I joined my home group and raised my hand as a guy available for sponsorship and looked around and judged some people who weren't raising their hands. Uh, and I now do not raise my hand because I am at my limit. I can't do anymore. Like I have enough. Um, and I go to that home group every week and it's, you know, three or four or five recovery houses or, or whatever programs full of people and they're new and they're all looking for sponsorship. And the fact is there's maybe two people there that can raise their hand to say they're available for sponsorship. And so these people in recovery houses don't have cars to drive half an hour North or South to get these sponsors. So I don't know how readily available we have sponsors either in, in Northeast Maryland. Uh -huh. I could go on a big diatribe about that, but it would be a negative campaign on. <laughs> like, so I'll just let it alone. 
That's fair enough. Yeah, I just, uh, I, yeah, I don't know how I could take any more. I'm not going to tell you the number I'm at right now. It's higher than I'd like it to be. Uh, I know I've mentioned I have four dudes right now on step four, and I'm like waiting for them to finish. And I'm like, holy fuck, they're all going to finish at the same time. And I'm going to have all these four <laughs> yeah. steps to listen to. Um, another guy, Mr. T. No, you got to tell him. There's her, there's her fifth step. Well, yeah, yeah, you tell yeah. Them, did you get done to answer all the questions? Okay, do your fifth step and then come find me. Well, exactly, <laughs> right. But it's a, it's only going to prolong the inevitable. They're all still going to come. I was going to say, time. you're just buying some time. Right. Well, you know, the longer you wait and the farther you get in the steps, the more distance it gets because they'll start separating themselves out by the ones that stick around and the ones that don't get overwhelmed with family and wives and kids and jobs and houses. <laughs> I would think so. And you know what? I'm actually lying. I think it's, I think it's five guys now. Wow. Hmm. Wow. It's just too many. Uh, whatever. But yeah, I'm hoping they spread out some. I, I can't, I don't know. I, like five video chats. What am I going to do? Spend like eight hours a day in video chat? Just <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah. Uh, back to this, just to finish up, we can hit our break real yeah. quick. We're already bullshitting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Mr. T Bear said he hasn't been to a meeting in six weeks, and before that, he hadn't missed a day for six years. Wow! Wow! Uh, he said that staying connected with his sponsees does help, though. Um, Anna said she's late to the party, but finding new ways of dealing with herself and her negative thinking. She said no one can rescue her now, so self care is at the top of her priority list. I think that's interesting. Nobody can rescue her. Uh, John says he's calling random folks just to get outside of himself. Uh, I think that's a really interesting concept, right? When we're like struggling within ourselves, maybe we could call other people. That's usually the, the best answer possible. Like call some random other people and see if they're doing all right. And then we all feel better. Yeah. Uh, sobriety Matt said same, just more meetings and more reading. Donna said more meetings, uh, you know, online, also renewed contact with some AA friends she'd not seen in years. Like, I guess she got to visit. Uh, she was explaining her her old home groups that she had moved away from, which I've also had a similar experience of being able to hang out with some people I don't live near anymore. And then Alexandra said online meetings once a day. She said she's been going through a lot to a lot more than just the one a day though on the days where she's struggling. And so I guess her goal was one a day, but then she was going to as many as it took. I've heard of quite a few people going to two and three a day right now. I, I know it's, it's honestly way easier for me to get to meetings. Now I would not be in three or four or seven a week. If it wasn't for this, I would be in one, maybe two. <laughs> yeah. And I think for some of us too, like my life has changed a little bit, but I still go to work every day and then i have things you know obviously i'm doing here and unfortunately now i have to go do more grocery shopping than i've had to do in a while so you know i don't have an abundance of free time all of a sudden and i think some people do and that's not a good or bad it's just saying yeah right. i had the time that i was home for that eight hours a day that i'm at work i probably could hit more meetings and you know recommit in certain areas too so no absolutely and i think that's a i think that's one of the huge differences between the 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 areas of thinking right now people who have been going to work every day throughout all this 
are probably very much like, uh, you know, it's, it's reinforced. Hey, I go out of my house. I go somewhere every day. I'm around people. I come the fuck home. Ain't nothing bad happened yet. Like, right. why shouldn't I also do this to my benefit at a meeting? Yeah. And not only that, but I've heard some people at work, you know, and these are people that live in, in all different counties throughout Delaware and Maryland. We cover four counties in two different state, three different states, because we got a Pennsylvania person, too. And of course, we're geographically, we're a fairly small area, but not one of us even knows anyone that has had coronavirus. Gotcha. Yeah. I had somebody else ask me that one time too. They were like, do you, have you even known anybody who had, I actually do know somebody who has it. So I guess it is a little, a little more personal when you see the struggle somebody goes through with it. Um, But yeah, let's, uh, let's take a break and we'll come back and we'll, we'll hopefully actually get to step five at this point. (laughs) This episode has been brought to you by Voices of Hope, Inc., a nonprofit grassroots recovery community organization located in Maryland. Voices of Hope is made up of people in recovery, family members, and allies. Together, members strive to protect the dignity and respect of those that use drugs and those in recovery by advocating for treatment, support resources, and mentoring. Please visit us at www.voicesofhopececilmd.org and consider donating to our cause. All right, we're back. And so now we're actually going to finally get to step five. We admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Um, and, and I don't know, you know, this is one of those steps where I don't know that there's a whole ton to say about it, which is probably why we had all that room earlier to talk about everything but this. Um, but, I, you know, I think that one of the key parts to explain is what the exact nature is. I guess that's one of the things that stood out when I was reading some of the literature for it. It's just what is the exact nature of my wrongs? What does that mean? What does it do for my recovery to know that? Um, beyond that, I mean, generally, when we talk about step five, we talk about sharing step four with someone. Um, but then it, it surely says in our literature Step five is not simply a reading of step four. And so that's where we got to figure out, you know, what is the extra part beyond that? Um, I will say we talked about before you brought up like not sharing with your sponsor uh, and and that it could be somebody else besides your sponsor to, to share your stuff with. And when I was reading the literature, like the basic text, very wide open. And I don't think the basic text ever mentioned sponsorship in it. Um, not in the first half. It might in the stories. I don't read them, but. It doesn't say anything. It says it could be anybody, this, that, and the other. But then as it's funny, as you move forward in the books, like it works how wise, a little more specific. They're like, you know, yeah, you're probably going to make this your sponsor, right? And then once you get to the step working guide, which was written even later than that, it's almost like assumed it's definitely your goddamn sponsor. <laughs> and I was like, that's really interesting to see the time frames these were written and how it evolved. Yeah. Uh, okay. So here's some quotes we got. Um, fifth step is the key to freedom. That's one of the first things that stood out to me. I'm like, well, that's a powerful ass statement. It's the key to freedom. What are your thoughts on that? So like most of the steps, when I worked it and did it in the beginning, I didn't, um, I didn't have a deep understanding. It was kind of like I just did it because that's what I was supposed to do. You know, that was the benefit of my recovery. 
um, or, or what they told me to do for my recovery. So I did it. Um, I will say that there was a huge, uh, lightening of my spirit or it just felt like, I guess you would call it, you know, ripping off a bandaid. I don't know. It was, it was awkward and weird to do, but when I did it, I did feel, uh, definitely more free of the baggage and some of the harm, I guess, that I had been dealt and dealt to others. Hmm. Um, and I don't know exactly why. I mean, I, I'm sure there's some psychological reason, but just going over and sharing that with someone else, it goes back to one of the, you know, cliche sayings we say all the time. It's like pain shared is pain lessened. And right. that was the experience that I had, but I don't know why that happened or what the reason was behind that. Sorry, I got a fly that's really bugging me over here and I'm trying <laughs> to kill it and get it out of here. He keeps flying all around the computer and in my face. And <laughs> Sorry. Uh, it's all right. Uh, distracting. <laughs> <laughs> now we're killing flies. We're awful. Um, so maybe, okay, I'm going to read this quote and maybe this touches on part of what you're talking about here. We start to realize that there is a difference between our actions and the exact nature of our wrongs. For instance, we may see example after example of situations where we lied in a vain attempt to make everyone like us. But those examples aren't the nature of our wrongs. The nature of these wrongs is the dishonesty and manipulation we were demonstrating each time we lied. If we look beyond the dishonesty and manipulation, will most likely find that we were afraid no one would like us if we told the truth. And I think when when you just said what you said, that's what stuck out to me is that that's a huge part of my story was I was terrified that if anybody knew the truth about me and the way I felt and thought that they wouldn't like me the same way I didn't like me. And so most of my my character defects or my exact natures and my wrongs was just I wanted to be loved and, and I didn't know how to get that in honesty. And so once I did finally get honest with somebody and they accepted me still, it was a very overwhelming, relieving experience. I think that's kind of what you're talking about. I'm not sure. Yeah. Now that you say that, that brought up that reading that opened up a line of thinking that really helps. Um, before, recovery i guess i just thought i must be a shitty person or a bad person i didn't really under you know people would ask me all the time well, why do you do these things why do you you know lie and steal and manipulate you know you say you let's be say my family like you say you love us and you say you care about us and i thought i did you know i thought yeah i love my family they help me they take care of me but any chance i got i would lie or steal or you know I didn't want to get caught. I wasn't trying to hurt them, but I did it anyway. And the best answer I could come up with was I'm just a piece of shit. You know, mm -hmm. I'm just a horrible person and, uh, you know, I deserve whatever bad comes my way. And once I did the step and answered the questions and realized, oh, you know, I'm doing these things, not just because I'm a terrible person, but, you know, I'm hurt. And I'm trying to get a relief or a need met. And I'm just going about trying to get some relief or get a need met in a really shitty way. Like it, it seemed to put some um, concrete 
reasoning behind why I was doing what I was doing besides I'm just a piece of shit. Because if I'm just a piece of shit, there's nothing I can ever do to change that. There's nothing I can ever do to fix that. I'm just stuck being a piece of shit the rest of my life. But if there's, you know, an underlying thought process or an underlying uh, reasoning behind what I'm doing, I can begin to change that thought process or that reasoning and I can find a different solution. Right. Right. And I, I think that's definitely part of this. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned that. And, and one of the quotes that I loved out of the fifth step was that uh, these defects grow in the dark and die in the light of exposure. Um, and, you know, it's kind of one of those cliches I heard a lot when I came around where sick as our secrets, basically. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of talks about what you were just mentioning, that once we expose these these parts of us that we've always tried to hide because they made us a shitty person, per se, like once we expose them and find the exact nature behind it that, hey, you did this because you were terrified people weren't going to like you or you did this because you couldn't stand the pain you were living in and you were trying to escape from it for a while. Then we can start to see that there's another way. Right. And that's how the the, the defect dies once it hits the light, because now we learned a little more about it. We learned that there's other possible strategies for dealing with it than, than we were using. And we don't have to stay as sick as we used to be when we just believe that was the only way forward. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, that fear that I'm not going to get what I need or I'm not going to get what I want, you know, was driving me to do things that were against my morals and values. You know, Mm -hmm. once I learned that, Oh, it's these, you know, it's, it's developing a new strategy to try to get those needs met, you know, is the key to this. Like what I was trying to do all along, um, I was just having a bad solution to a problem, you know, and not seeing that it was a bad solution. It was the only solution that I knew or the only solution that I saw was to whatever, lie, cheat, steal, use people um, to get this need met. Now, once I realize, like, oh, this is the problem, you know, then we get into the next couple of steps of figuring out a solution. Yeah. Those character defects. Right. What to do with them. And so I I think, you know, uh, one of the things I wanted to point, we talked about a couple couple weeks ago when we did step four. I was telling you one of the things I hated in step four reading was that it says we no longer have to be afraid. And Mm -hmm. uh, I was really mad about that. And so I had to point out that in this step it says, we may find we're feeling frightened at this point. This fear is only natural. <laughs> I was like, how come last step we didn't have to be afraid anymore, and now it's natural, you bastards. Yeah. Uh, so another thing I thought was interesting, it says the first thing we must realize is that the fifth step is not a quick fix for a painful situation. If we work this step expecting our feelings to go away, we are expecting the steps to numb us the way drugs did. And I thought that was an interesting thing. I don't know I don't know where that quote came from or who was thinking that. I don't know that I necessarily ever thought that, but I just thought it was interesting that they felt the need to stick it in the middle of the reading as if it happened frequently. Um I'll relate it to what I'll say is like a my religious experience is so I was raised Catholic and you have this, you know, you go through confession and 
Catholicism, if no one's familiar with that, it's where you sort of go in with a priest and you go over what your bad things you've done, either your whole life or since your last confession. You go in, you tell him all these things. Then he tells you what your penance needs to be, what what your consequences of that are. Usually it has something to do with numbers of prayers or whatever. And then you go out and you're, I, I, I'm going to probably butcher this, but you're freed of that sin and apparently, you know, absolved of that sin. And I assume, so you're supposed to feel good about yourself again. I'm not really sure. Mm. Um, and I think if you look at it from that context, like that's not what this is. This isn't a, like I go in, I tell a sponsor or whoever all these bad things that I've done. And now all of a sudden I'm absolved of all that. And I'm supposed to feel good about myself. You know, this isn't, this isn't that process. This is in a, in a awareness, you know, I'm becoming aware of why I do the things I do or, or what's motivating me to, to be this bad person or commit these bad actions but it doesn't just fix them. Like just talking about them and telling you all about them doesn't make them go away. You know, again, that's where the next couple of steps come in is where I begin to look at, okay, so now I know, you know, sort of the underlying reasons why I was doing what I'm doing. Let's get a little deeper into that, into six and seven and start to realize, okay, you know, these are the specific reasons behind that. And these are some things I can do instead of doing those things. Like I think six and seven help give us a path forward. Um, mm -hmm. Five is really just sort of getting to an understanding. I would agree with that. The thing that made me think of kind of between the, the quote and what you were saying is the times, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, in step nine, you know, it talks about not, jumping out there and, and harming others just to be relieved of guilt, right? Not like sometimes we just want to make that admission just to free ourselves <laughs> right. of the burden of carrying it. But sometimes we can do more harm than good in doing that. And so it's not about freeing ourselves of guilt. It's about, you know, dealing with the actual problem. And probably during, you know, active use or acting out of any sort for me, it was all about let me get this out and get the apology out so I can feel relieved even though my behavior is not going to change whatsoever, which is the true way I, I, you know, to lead me to feeling better about myself. And so this quote kind of reminded me and, and with what you were saying, like this isn't just, Hey, let me give this admission out into the world to this other person and my higher power and just be free of it. Like this is, Hey, yeah, I'm going to make this admission, but now the, you know, there's some work and a process that starts from here to, to actually work on feeling better. Right. I'm going to make the admission basically in order to take ownership of it, to take responsibility for it. Right, right. Um, one of the things I, I did come across in looking at this is the thing I think you've mentioned once or twice on here about how, you know, Bill's original intent of saying character defects at one point and shortcomings at another was just to not be repetitive, even though there's this like huge debate about whether that means more <laughs> than that or, you know, if the, defect is part of your personality or the shortcoming is the actual thing you did or i i don't know it not i don't think a whole lot of that really matters um for me at least I, i've never it's one of those ones i never felt like 
in love with. I never really liked the quote so much, but probably because I couldn't remember what the hell it was. And so I got annoyed. Yeah, right. with it. Uh, but, you know, I, I did stumble across that again while I was looking for this stuff. Um, and one of the last things, there really wasn't that much about it. One of the last things was it says, and this isn't a complete quote. This is kind of built together from some different quotes. But basically, it describes what the exact nature is. And it says, the exact nature of our wrongs is our character defects. What's behind the pattern of our addiction or reasons we acted out in ways we did? Um, and one of the best things I've found to deal with that, and I have not done this in our program, um, I guess to break my anonymity some more. I, a lot of times when I'm in here, I'll say the other fellowship as if we're like, we're in NA and we can't refer to these other fellowships. Like this is our <laughs> podcast. I can talk about whatever the fuck right. I want, right? So I did some uh, some SLAA and SAA. Um, and when I did a fourth step in there, they gave you this chart, right? And you write down what it was that happened, uh, why it happened. You talked about like what character defects were involved in the reason it happened. And there was a, a place for what part of you it affected. And this was like one of those interesting things that I don't think I ever got exposed to in, in NA. And it talks about it either affects your self-esteem, your pride, your emotional security, your financial security, your ambitions, your personal relationships, or your sexual relationships. And so you actually had to figure out what part of you was affected by this. And that kind of went into like, did it hurt your pride? Did it hurt your ability to like have, you know, trust with people? Like it really delved into what part of this it, it affected in you. Um, and then, you know, you put the nature of your wrong, like what action or behavior caused it and, and what lied underneath of it. And I just, it's like an interesting flow chart almost to see like, okay, well this, yeah. this affected my pride. And that's because uh, I was selfish and wanted to look good in this situation with my friends and, and this action didn't allow me to. And what it really came down to in the end was the self-centered fear that people wouldn't like me. Right. Like, and so that's what I think while there's a, a variety of different patterns we can establish with the exact nature, I think for me, ultimately, it kind of comes down to self-centered fear is the ultimate exact nature of everything for, that I do that's negative. You got any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's, that's pretty much what I was thinking too. I, I think I, I remember doing it through, uh, in NA through the step working guide. And I, I can't specifically remember now, but I almost remember writing it out in a flow chart. Like you're saying, like there was a number of questions where I almost had to make a list. And then the next question I'd have to go back and refer to that other list. And then the next question I'd have to go back and refer to the same list. And I ended up doing almost, you know, in essence, what you're talking about, almost like a flow chart um, with a similar, like it ended up being a very similar process. And, uh, yeah, I think, you know, what a result of that came to be like the, the core of our disease is this self-centered fear, you know, it's, it's fear. And, you know, again, I don't know that coming to that awareness, uh, it didn't fix the problem. Just be aware, like, oh, yeah, this is what's at the core of my disease. This is what's at the core of who I am. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I still I still had the self-centered fear after that. Like, uh, it, was, it didn't go away. Yeah. 
But I think kind of to what you were talking about earlier, like this gave me the ability to see that I was operating from a skewed belief system, right? And that's what was causing. And I think the chart version of this step actually did that better than any other way I've worked it. Um, And letting me see that like, okay, my belief system is if I'm, you know, honest with people, they won't like me. That's why all this trouble has been caused along the way. Like I can look back from the from the right side of the flow chart back to the where I'm acting out. And it's like it's caused because I believe that people aren't going to like me. Like that's the problem. If I just would have not thought that, like if that wasn't my internal belief, I'd have probably been fine and never done that cruddy shit. Yeah. And, you know, seeing like I would call it the the repeating of patterns in different situations you know, and then realizing like, oh yeah, this is, you know, for I, I'm doing, I'm say different things, but all for the same reasons. You know what I mean? There's all the same reasons behind what I'm doing, and uh, trying to get this need met or this, you know, seeking this love or seeking this approval or seeking this affection. You know, and I go about it through these lies, manipulation, but it's it's still seeking the same thing. One of the things I was reminded of in uh, in doing some of the research for this is the concept or theory that every human action is driven by one of two forces. Like it, you can always narrow them down to one of two forces. You're either living out of fear or you're living out of love. And I don't, I don't know that there's any provable scientific way to to measure that or anything. But I, I think it is an interesting concept, and it it is. You know, when you're living in love, you're probably not going to act on character defects or, or you're not going to be manipulating or lying or trying to harm people. But, you know, when you're acting in fear, that's where a lot of this stuff comes from. Like, I'm scared I won't get what I want or I won't get the outcome I want. And so I'm forced to try to manipulate situations to get us there. What What do you think about that idea that maybe there's only real two innate drives? Uh, Yeah, I think it's pretty... I mean, at least for my application of recovery, it's pretty accurate. You know, that's kind of the way that I've learned or try to practice living my life. Like, am I reacting to things in in fear? And let's, you know, take this sort of current situation with this pandemic. Like, if I'm making all my decisions based on, like, fear, um, I isolate and get alone and I'm only worried about me and I'm not going to have enough toilet paper and I'm not going to be able to get food and I need more masks. You know, it's like all that stuff. There's going to be a shortage. We're going to run out of whatever it is, food, respirators, you name it. Whereas, you know, if we just think, Hey, we all, you know, need to work together and and of course i'm gonna say this and it drives me nuts when i see all these stupid ads like together you know and (laughs) we're in this together like those ads are annoying but the truth is like i need to just have you know trust and faith and you know in essence try to love the people around me and do the best that i can to you know support uh my community my family my fellow co-workers taking personal responsibility um, rather than coming at it from a place of fear. 
Yeah, I think I think you definitely make a valid point. I, I, for some reason, when you were talking there, I was thinking of all the people who have like done all these doomsday preparations and, and like stocked <laughs> yeah. up on all this stuff. And I feel like they're the same people that don't want to be quarantined at home right now. Right. <laughs> to some extent, I'm like, what the hell? You're, you're prepared. <laughs> um, no, something that that made me think of too, though. You know, we talk about uh, everything coming from love or fear and so you know the core of our disease is self-centered fear and so we say love is the antidote for that but i know you and i kind of also believe that connectedness and connection to others because you know the the disease is so isolating we kind of think of connectedness as part of a solution too so do you think are, are love and connection the same thing yeah well that's i mean love you need other people you need those connections to love i mean you can't love on an island i mean i guess you can but is it really doing any good if you're <laughs> you know, if you're just thinking out well wishes to other people i mean I, I think that more helps you than it helps the other person but you know hmm. you don't I, you don't I, believe in sending good vibes <laughs> uh Thoughts and prayers. I don't think it really helps the other person. Ah. <laughs> it helps me, uh, if I was being honest. Like I think when okay. I talk about praying for other people, um, just in, in my belief, I don't think sending good thoughts out into the universe actually creates a result for you. Hmm. I mean, if I was to be honest, that's cool. No, that's that's fair. I I personally do believe it does uh, create. I don't know if it creates a result. I think it does something. I'll say that. Um, yeah. Well, I think people do feel. So again, this is where the connectedness part comes in. I think people do feel love. Like you feel love when you're in the presence of someone who loves you. And maybe it's only a subtle underlying thing. Um, but I believe most people can relate to when you're around what I'll call like creepy people or like shady people or you know people that you just feel like this person does not have my best interest at heart and you might not you know feel a need to like harm them or or run away from them i mean it's it's just a subtle underlying feeling but i think you get the same thing from people that love you as well it's a subtle underlying feeling that you feel maybe a little safer Maybe you're willing to be a little more vulnerable. Maybe you're willing to be a little more open. And I think for me, when I pray for other people or when I, you know, send good vibes or good thoughts to other people, that's what I'm doing is creating an atmosphere of safety maybe or, or openness or an environment where those things can flourish. Um, but it doesn't, I guess like say, it it, it doesn't create a result. It creates an atmosphere where those things can result. Interesting. Yeah. No, I'm I'm definitely a believer in the vibes. And I think if they're, you know, low level vibrations between people in a room, I think they can also be pushed out into the greater world uh, to, to change the course of it for in some way, shape or form. Like you said, I don't know exactly how that affects the outcome per se, but. Um, and that gets into a, there's a version of meditation. I, we've talked about this before called meta meditation. Yeah. And that is the goal of, you know, or I'm going to say the goal, there's never a goal to meditation, but one of the, the practices of this meta meditation is to try to get 
ourselves in a, I'll say space or condition where we are sort of generating love, uh, good vibes, good wishes towards all beings, you know, even down to insects and plants and, you know, that I believe connectedness is a key part of love. Like that's how we express love. That's how we communicate love is through feeling connected, feeling a part of feeling joined with other people, other beings, other things. Yeah, no. And so I I think I've read about this meditation where people believe that when it's done in like small groups, like when a certain number of people or portion of the population is doing it, that like crime and and violence actually gets lower in the area they're doing it in. Mm. And I look, I don't want to pass on any bad information. I don't (laughs) know that I've read any actual studies on this, but I, it seemed pretty seemed pretty realistic when they were talking right. about it. Uh, maybe I'll have to look into that and find out if there's actual information on that where they've you know proven it. I would love to re- it would prove me wrong, so then I would have to try to change my stance on my love and good vibes actually creates results. I mean, I think I should put whether I think it creates results. Or not. I think the, the action is still healthy. Maybe right. it's just my naivety. Well, I mean, I'm the one who read this a few years ago, and yet I'm not meditating on lowering the, you know, violence in Cecil County. Maybe I should be. Right? Like, <laughs> what the hell? Yeah. Um, and again, I think the idea is that you're you're trying to uh, through meditate through the meta meditation is you're trying to build a connection with all people. You're trying to stop that idea that there's a us or a them or that there's a me and a you. And it's like, no, there's just an us, you know, there's just a, it's an all of us. And if one of us is suffering, then all of us is suffering. And if one of us is in harm, then all of us are in harm. And when we can grasp that, you know, sort of as a, as a starting point, um, it helps defeat the attitudes of, well, they're just addicts. Who cares if they overdose, you know? Well, they're just, you know, they're just homeless pieces of shit. I mean, we're better off without them anyway, you know? Mm. When, we're, when we're coming to these problems of addiction and homelessness from the perspective of this is my brother. This is, you know, another fellow human being who I care about, Um then we're more willing to sort of be looking for solutions. That's funny. All I could picture when you were saying that uh, there was a TV show, Star Trek, the next generation. And they had like this alien race called the Borg and the Borg were, were, you know, all one collective individual, even though it was like, you know, thousands and thousands or millions of people, but that it is what you were just talking about, but maybe in not such a healthy way. Like they were pretty much (laughs) taking over the galaxy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but they had the right mentality, I guess. <laughs> well, it, you need that spiritual principle of love in there somewhere. Yeah. I don't know how the I don't know if the Borg were very loving, but <laughs> it didn't doesn't seem sound right. like it. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, what what's do you have any final thoughts about step five? I'm, you know, again, um, I think for me it was definitely about sharing it with my sponsor. It was about gaining a connection to another human. It was about breaking that cycle of lying to people 
uh, at least the first time through, it was really just about like, hey, let me break the cycle of trying to be liked and just give you what I got. And hopefully you still like me. Like it's trusting in the process. Yeah. So the only thing I would sort of question, I guess, to see if you have any input on is why do you think it would be important that we admit it, you know, to three different people or maybe two people in ourselves? Like we say, God you know, to ourselves and to another human being. Like, it's pretty specific that it wants us to to make this admission, you know, I'm going to say three times, but in Ooh. in three distinct ways, you know, it, it wants us to make this admission. I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. I have a little bit, but. Yeah, I got a little bit too, but the crazy part is when you just asked me that, this came out of nowhere, and I was thinking probably because they based this shit on Christianity, and, you know, <laughs> Judas was had to be questioned three times or some shit like that uh, in the New <laughs> Testament. And it's probably all about that. Like, oh, you got to beat the, the time where he failed and sinned. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't that a thing? Wasn't it Judas who, like, got questioned and the third time he, he fucked it up? Yeah. And, yeah, see? I bet you that's where this is. And now they're like, oh, you got to make up for your sins, this Christian damn program. Now, uh, <laughs> so I think... From what I was reading, uh, admitting it to yourself, like that's the, the probably the biggest portion of it. Um, you know, the, the self-honesty has to come first. I think admitting it to another person is a big part of being able to see the character defects or the exact nature. I don't, I don't know that I'm real good at this point in time when I'm working a fifth step at being able to see the exact nature behind everything. I'm just kind of able to put it on paper. And then I think when I go over it with this another human being, they're better able to help me point out the exact natures behind some of this stuff. Uh, so I think that's crucial. The God thing, A, w- what I read was, yes, God already knows it, but we should still humbly like present it to him or whatever. I'm not sure about that. Um, I really don't know why that, seems necessary and and b the other portion of that is i'm really confused about how people who don't believe in a in a you know god person for them or their god their higher power looks way different how the fuck does that work for them (laughs) yeah how they would do that so uh circle back a minute yes i believe that you know, it was important for me to, I'll use the word admit it to myself, but it was really just a matter of becoming aware of it, opening my eyes to it and taking ownership or responsibility for it. Um, I also think that's a big part of admitting it to someone else. That other person, as you had said, they they helped me get a different perspective on it. They helped me to one, take responsibility for the things I need to take responsibility for, but two, they can help me to uh, not take responsibility for some of the things that I was a victim of. So like in my case, I had suffered some abuse and I had some weird feelings around that, some things that I had sort of taken uh, some blame some guilt, shame, and, and blame that I took from that, that really weren't healthy. That really wasn't a way to look at it. And to have another person point out to me, like, no, you were a victim in this. You know, you were, someone did you wrong. Like, yes, you were harmed. You were done wrong. And so it was important to have another person help point out some of that. Um, 
because again, if, if I only run with information that's in my own head, you know, I'm very limited on my perspective and limited on my ability to see things. And that other person can help point some of that out. And then for me personally, the, the God part, and I definitely had a different relationship with God when I did it, you know, that first time, um, I had basically taken my whole, uh, fourth step that I had written out. I kind of sat down, um, by myself, um, it was on a camping trip with some other people in recovery and I sat down and basically burned it in a fire and said, this was me like turning this over or giving it to God. And it, it was a piece of and maybe going back to the Christianity thing. It was almost like a piece of um, what I talked about with doing a confession when I was Catholic, it was like, letting it go saying, all right, all these things happened. All of this is a part of who I am and what I was, and I have to take responsibility for it. But if I'm going to try to change and move forward, I can let myself go and let go of some of this guilt and shame and not have to hang to it and beat myself up for it. Like I've been doing for so long. So for me that, that admitting it to God was also like a turning it over process of, of mm. letting go of it, a freeing like of it. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I was picturing maybe I should get into like a marijuana maintenance program and I could write my course <laughs> step on rolling papers. And then it'd be a nice symbolic way Just to look it up. Right. Uh, no, I think if you were cool. high and write it when you were high, you'd have, you know, 87 pages of this long pontification. Oh, yeah. <laughs> No, I, I think that's a good point. And just a, a letting it go kind of way, you know, giving it to God as in it's it's not mine to deal with. Goes back to the old idea of like, you know, creating a God box and kind of putting the things you worry about or you're trying to control on paper and just putting them in the God box so they're not yours to deal with anymore. I like I like symbolic gestures. I think they're useful sometimes to, you know, help us remember exactly what it is we're doing. Uh, so that that makes more sense about giving it to God than anything else I've thought of. Like, I, I really don't can't see any other purpose. You know, the, <laughs> yeah. the literature even mentions like, well, obviously, if you believe in a God, he probably already knows what you did. So it's like, but how so how would you do that if you don't have a, uh, a God like I have a God, I guess, to say like kind of you don't really necessarily have a God. I think like I have a God nowadays. So how would you do that now? Um, well, again, I would look at it more as a, I am turning this over to a, a power greater than myself. Like I don't have the answers to this stuff. I don't have the solutions to this stuff. I don't know what to do with this. This is who I am with all my best information, all my smart thinking, all my best decision making. I've still in essence made, you know, this mess that is this fourth step that's in front of me with all these character defects and shortcomings and harms and wrongs um, and assets, you know, cause there should be some assets and stuff in there too. But this is everything that I have. This is the best that I have and it still falls short. So I got to kind of turn that over to a power greater than myself because that power greater than myself is where the solutions are going to come from a power outside of me. Gotcha. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I've often wondered and not, you know, I've known a couple of, uh, <clears throat> I guess, atheists or agnostics or, or different types of individuals who don't believe in a, 
a God similar to the belief I have. Um, and I've, I've met them along the way. I've never, you know, gotten intimately into asking them specific questions about steps, but I do often wonder, I'm like, how in the fuck would you do this without, <laughs> without actually having like a God pictured in your head? I don't know how that would work. Well, it's, I mean, it's similar to the, let's, you know, just to circle back a minute to the, like the meta meditation thing. It's like when I, meditate for like to send these loving vibes out into the universe. Like I don't, I don't need a God or a deity to do that too. You know what I mean? Like I am, I am just sending these uh, vibes, well wishes, good thoughts, good out into the universe and trusting that when I put that out there to the universe that I will, I don't know that I'll receive it back but I will definitely perceive it more, become more aware of it. That's where my thinking will be more centered. And I think this is similar in that I need to trust that I don't have all the answers, that I'm not the fucking smartest person in the world that can figure it all out and come up to all the solutions myself. Like I need powers greater than me, whether they come from, you know, 12 step meetings, whether they come from revelations that come up in step work, whether they come up in uh, just a one on one conversation with a guy at my work that all of a sudden this new idea pops in because he says some offhanded comment. And I go, huh, that's interesting. I've never really looked at that or thought about that that way. Like if I'm only relying on myself, I will never be open to those uh, those inputs from powers outside of myself. Hmm. So I think that it's a little easier for me to understand your stance on it, because while you might not have a, a specific ish God, you kind of do believe in, you know, the energy of the universe to some extent or, or, or the vibes or, or things of that nature. Yeah. Like, I think, I, I don't know. I, I want to say most, but I, I often say most people and don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. But I think there's people out there that don't really believe in that either. Like maybe the more logical, like, no, we're here because of a, you know, freak accident that we developed through and, and there's no vibes or energy like that. And there's no mm. God. And I just wonder frequently, I'm like, how in the hell some steps make sense. Like you have the group level power, you know, that's bigger than you. I get that. And spiritual principles that's bigger than you, but how do you, what are you going to tell spiritual principles that you, the exact nature of your wrongs? Like, do you, are you supposed to share it at the group level? Like, I, I don't know. Some of it's just weird. Yeah, and, and some of I, I buck things just for the sake of language. Like, say, I have some hang-ups with the, using the word God so much and things like that. So I would definitely say that I have a dependence on powers greater than me in the universe. You know what I mean? I definitely think that's, for myself personally, is important. Um, knowing that I am... And even people don't have all the answers. And I do believe there is energy out there that there is, I don't know what you want to call it, good energy, bad energy. You know, I think those are things that exist. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I do too. I'm, uh, and and when I say, you know, my God or how my God looks like, I don't even know what the fuck. It's not, I don't have any real specific God. (laughs) It's kind of the God of the energy that's out there, really. Like, right. 
maybe it is the energy that's out there is what I think. Uh, I don't know. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't particularly love the word God or using it. Cause I feel like it just instantly conjures up Jesus for everyone. And that's yeah. not my goal. Like my goal is just to have a short three letter, one syllable version of saying higher power. Uh, somebody needs to create a better word for that. I don't know. I don't know. You got anything else on step five? Uh, no, I, I will say this, that, you know, just to wrap up, I will did experience that after I did my fifth step, you know, with myself and my sponsor and my God, um, it definitely took some power away from the bad experiences. It took some of that, uh, negative energy away to the point that after that, I was more open to share about different things in meetings. Um, I was more open to share my individual experiences, you know, as far as being abused and stuff one-on-one, like those were things that had so much shame and embarrassment and guilt behind them up until that point. And then after that point, some of that seemed to go away and I was able to take those bad experiences, experiences and use them as more of a i'm going to say a positive thing moving forward by being able to share them with other people and you know use it as as a moving forward point rather than being overwhelmed by guilt and shame yeah i'm with you i think i think it did become you know the whole everything's a a lesson and a blessing or there's a lesson and a blessing in everything you know definitely comes out of that that (laughs) sorry i was gonna say i say that more for people that were uh like if you have a a a lot of fear about sharing it with other people like there are some good things that can come about it's not just you know you're not just opening yourself up like an open wound you know that wound will begin to heal and get better and you know in essence close up to where it's it's not so painful yeah yeah and i and i think you're absolutely right i I do remember feeling a, a huge level of freedom uh, and, and free freeing um, how to say that. I just, there was something about this step that, that brought a freeing feeling to me and it didn't fix it all in one fail swoop, like it mentions, but it did really give me the ability to say, damn, well this worked. I, I really want to continue living in a more honest and open way because I feel like the more I do that, maybe the more it'll work, right? Like maybe the freer yeah. I'll get. Kind of like how, you know, that that first drug I used felt like it brought some freedom because it turned off some of that self-talk and that negative stuff. Like this was the same way. It was like, damn, this this kind of did a little bit. Maybe I'll chase more of this freedom. Um, and then, you know, then the program got really difficult because I had to work step six and that's where it got hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember everybody talking about four and six when I got here about being the hard ones and four, I didn't think was all that bad. It was, it was scary to own some of this stuff and to tell another person about it. But six was like a fucking pain, dude. Six was where it got really hard for me. Uh, That's a tough step. So sorry if you're about to work six, it's hard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I will say that I have, uh, since we talked about step four, I guess that's been quite a few weeks. I, I, it's in my calendar. I have a step work time on Monday nights and I've held faithful to putting an hour in at least each week and, uh, slowly, but surely that is a long fucking step in that version you gave me. Thank you. Uh, but slowly, but surely I'm getting it done. And, and one of these days will be, uh, I guess we'll be 
Nutella going over it, possibly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Um, I think yeah. somewhere in the step working guide or the basic text, somewhere it says you got to do a face to face. Is know. that what it is? <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Those bastards. Uh, they weren't prepared for this moment, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess that's about it. We've we've definitely hit our normal amount of time. I did have a couple of other things to go back to the breaking quarantine idea, but you know, you you mentioned that's probably going to be on everybody's minds for a couple of weeks, so I'll save it. Maybe it'll still be relevant next week. Just some interesting stuff I I've read and and thought about that I think is neat to talk about, and I and I'd like to get your take on some of it. So. Yeah, I guess good. we'll save it for next week. Maybe our topic next week will be breaking quarantine or something. Yeah, <laughs> maybe I'll sneak yeah. out in the middle of the night and do like some nighttime breaking quarantine ops just for have, research. I have a feeling over the next couple of days and weeks, you're going to see that more and more breaking quarantines as as people get frustrated and fed up. <laughs> well, we will uh, we'll have it to talk about. I guess I don't know. All right. So if that's it, then I guess uh, it's been another successful episode. We've touched step five again. I guess we, you know, we got to stay doing this at least through December so we can hit all 12 steps so we don't leave anybody hanging. Um, (laughs) And we'll, we'll do it again next week. That wraps up this episode. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on your preferred platform. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to talk about or just want to add an opinion, contact us through Anchor. Email us at recoverysortof at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at recoverysortof.